0: thrilled to welcome back to Forward Guidance, Michael Howell of Cross Border Capital. Michael, welcome back. How have you been?
1: Pretty well, Jack. Great pleasure to be here again. Looking forward.
0: Pleasure is all mine. Michael, you came on Forward Guidance in, I believe, January of this year, a time when sentiment was very negative on Wall Street, institutional investors, retail investors. And you said liquidity, which you had forecasted to decline in 2022, is actually going to, it's bottomed. It's close to bottomed and it's going to go up. And I actually think stocks and risk assets are going to do well. And I you know, was thrilled to have you on in January, but in my in my gut, I said, you know, Michael, super smart guy, but I, I think he's wrong about this. I think risk assets are going down. And I'm so glad that uh you sort of balanced out the podcast because that just goes to show my gut was wrong. Uh, S&P 500 is, what, 20% higher, NASDAQ probably way way more than that. So your call that risk assets would do well has aged very well. I just want to roll out the red carpet. So first question I want to ask is, why do you think they've gone up? Do, do, have they gone up because liquidity went up? And can you define liquidity? In what ways has liquidity actually gone up this year?
1: Okay, well, the, the short answer is liquidity matters. It's the most important thing for investors. Really, to watch and track. Uh, the reason the market's gone up is, is very clearly to do with more liquidity, and that's the key factor. Um, what is liquidity? Um, let me start by saying what it isn't. It's not a measure of interest rates. It's not conventional money supply. In terms of our definition, which is a, a long-standing definition that uh, basically goes back to the time that I was at Salomon Brothers back uh, probably two, two decades or more ago, it's looking at the flow of money through global financial markets. So it's the cash and credit that is available for purchase or investment in assets, uh, and it's the key measure that drives asset prices.
0: Right. So there's three factors, bank credit, central bank liquidity, and then cross-border transactions. And I I think those get more complicated as you you go down the list. What's going on with the, let's just start with the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, a very simple model the, uh, so it's a you know one factor analysis is oh when the Federal Reserve is doing quantitative easing and its balance sheet is going up that's adding liquidity when it's doing quantitative tightening its balance sheet is going down that is removing liquidity the Federal Reserve continues to do quantitative tightening uh, although its balance sheet did sp- Spike up in March and April as it extended loans to banks via the discount window and its new bank term funding program. So, what's been going? Has has the Fed net net added or taken away liquidity since we spoke in January?
1: But I'll come back to the Fed question in in a tick. Uh, The first thing is that we look at central banks. So, central banks are a primary source of liquidity. On top of that, you've got what the private sector does, and that includes banks and it includes shadow banks. Uh, A lot of that lending is based on collateral. So one of the things you've got to try and detect is what is happening to collateral, what are the haircuts that credit providers are giving on collateral, and that is something that will determine liquidity in the system. And let me stress again, we're looking at financial market liquidity here. We're not really thinking about liquidity in the real economy. In actual fact, if money is in the real economy, it is not in the financial markets. So in actual fact, one of the things we kind of want for strong financial markets and strong financial liquidity is a weak real economy. So hold that thought. The third thing is, as you rightly say, is cross-border flows. And that's another factor which I come on to. So if we go back to the first of those, which is what the central banks are doing, and there's really two central banks that kind of matter in this. One is the US Federal Reserve, and the other is the People's Bank of China. The others are smaller or bit part players, not to say they can't affect things, but they really will probably be in thrall to the uh, to the Fed or they'll be operating policy pretty similar to the Fed. And I'm talking here of the BOJ, the uh, ECB or the Bank of England, for example. Now, what is the Federal Reserve doing? And what is the Federal Reserve doing to this balance sheet? The first thing to sort of disabuse people of is the balance sheet is not the key liquidity aggregate to look at, okay? What we look at is something we term Fed liquidity, which is a concept we defined a few years ago which is basically looking at the effective liquidity creating components of the balance sheet. Now, there's a lot of uh, you know talk on Twitter about what are the right things or wrong things to look at, but basically what you've got to look at is the asset side of the Fed balance sheet. You've got to subtract from that uh, factors like the TGA, the Treasury General Account, which absorbs liquidity uh, if the if the Treasury builds up deposits at the Fed. Uh, the reverse repo pool, which is another absorber of liquidity, and a third factor, which is becoming more and more important, are operating losses that the Federal Reserve is making on its portfolio. Uh, not mark-to-market losses, but the operating losses, in other words, when it's paying up more in interest uh, than it's receiving uh, on, the, on the stock of, of uh, bonds and notes. So these are the factors that we look at in terms of Fed liquidity. What is happening to that Fed liquidity? It's basically is going up. We first flagged in October of last year, 2022, that the decline in Fed liquidity, which is equivalent to looking at what is happening to bank reserves, essentially had stopped going down. It had started to flatline. And that was in the wake of the British guilt debacle, which you recall happened uh, following the new Prime Minister uh, Truss's budget statement in September of 22. That was a disaster, okay? The point that we made there was that if that debacle in the British sovereign debt market, the gilt market, had happened in the US Treasury market, we'd have all been toast. In other words, there'd have been a global financial crisis. You don't get that sell-off in a key sovereign debt market without there being disruption. And that spooked, we think, monetary authorities worldwide. Janet Yellen voiced concerns. And pretty much since that point, US bank reserves a flatlined, which is more or less telling us that Fed liquidity was moving sideways. Following that uh, flatlining, you saw around uh, February, March, following the SVB um, and other bank failures, CSFB, another example, First National, etc., that Fed liquidity began to rise. In other words, there was support directly given to the banking system through primary credit. uh, And you can see, in fact, on your chart, the effect that has had on NASDAQ, uh, it, it's almost moving one-for-one one with Fed liquidity injections. Now, NASDAQ is a very good barometer of this because basically NASDAQ in uh, in sort of, uh, let's say, in bond speak or in finance speak is a long-duration investment and long-duration investments are very sensitive to the liquidity climate. So basically, that's what's been happening with the Fed. Now, what the Federal Reserve is doing, and let's sort of uh, drill into the detail here, is it's claiming on the one hand that it's still doing QT because it has redefined very subtly QT and QE to mean the amount of treasuries that it holds on the balance sheet. If the stock of treasuries goes up, that's QE. Uh, if they come down, it's QT. That's a cute definition because it facilitates the Fed having its cake and eating it at the same time because that never used to be the definition. The definition used to be plain and simple whether liquidity was increasing or not. So the Federal Reserve can now claim, I mean, truthfully, they can claim that they are operating QT because the stock of Treasuries is being rolled off, but uh, at the same time, which they're not saying, is that the amount of liquidity being injected into the markets is actually going up. So they've got both things operating at once. Liquidity is going up, but they're technically doing QT, right? Uh, the other thing that they're doing, which we've got to start thinking about, is if this is what you might call not QEQE, there is also a parallel, not yield curve control, yield curve control going on. Now, yield curve control has a long history and maybe a checkered history. Uh, It was basically running in the US uh, at the end of World War II. And it ended it, if my memory serves me correctly, in 1951 uh, with the Treasury Fed Accord. And it also has uh, more recently appeared in Japan, with the Japanese are targeting an interest rate, uh, and prior to that, it uh, was evolving in Australia uh, for a shorter period. What you've got now in the US, what you have in the Eurozone, and what you are going to get more and more worldwide is a yield curve control, but it will have a different appearance to the more traditional yield targeting. So what you're getting in terms of the US market, just consider these statements. The first one is that the Treasury is talking about bond buybacks. OK, in other words, they will go into the market, they will buy bonds in the secondary market, they will reduce uh, the supply of, uh, of off-the-run Treasuries, which tend to be less liquid and tend to trade at a lower price, higher yield than uh, on-the-run Treasuries, freshly issued Treasuries of similar tenor, uh, and they will replace those off-the-run with newly issued bonds to increase liquidity. Now, what is the purpose of doing that is to try and improve the liquidity and reduce the volatility in the bond market. Now, hold that thought because bond volatility is key to liquidity creation. More bond volatility will increase the size of the haircut that credit providers give on collateral. And collateral is US Treasuries or, let's say, high-quality debt. Uh, Most of that is US dollar-based, let me say, as an aside. So number one is that they're trying to reduce bond market volatility. Secondly, they're reducing duration in the system. And what they're doing is they're issuing a uh, shorter duration debt uh, uh, instead of longer duration debt. And that is something which is likely to force investors to take more risk in the markets. The third thing they're doing is they've said that they will target the money market funds with bills that they issue. Now, if you look at the Uh, quarterly refinancing statement uh, the Treasury has put out, they are slated to issue something of well well in excess of a trillion dollars in Treasury bills. This is uh, a significant amount. It's way above what uh, people would have normally expected them to do. Uh, There is talk that they're doing this because uh, Treasury bills are very liquid and they're easy to sell. But actually, more particularly, the attraction of a Treasury bill is they can target the money funds. The Treasury have said they'll do that. They'll specifically look at issuing three-month and six-month bills, which, are, which satisfy the, or feed the appetite of the money funds. And if the money funds take those bills up, the reverse repo pool will come down. So in other words, there can be funding without negative liquidity consequences because Fed liquidity will not reduce arithmetically because the reverse repo pool is shrinking and providing that liquidity. And think of the reverse repo pool as money on the sidelines that is not circulating. So effectively, they're tapping into that. The fourth thing that happens is that there is by this debt issuance of both bills, uh, bonds and notes, is that collateral in the system will increase the pool of collateral. And actually, what you see typically, which is you know maybe a puzzling at first sight relationship, is that there's a very close correlation historically with the supply of treasury bills in the US in the market and global liquidity, the global liquidity cycle. And there's a chart in the chart pack that I think I sent you that I put there that is well worth contemplating. And if you take a look at the uh, extrapolated increase in bill issuance, it neatly, uh, if you like, dovetails with what we expect the global liquidity cycle to do anyway. In other words, it's moving up pretty strongly. So what you've got is a very uh, unusual set of unconventional monetary policies. And it's these uh, unconventional policies, which we're going to read more and more about uh, in the coming years. And I think the thought to hold here when you're looking forward about what, uh, you know, what's going to happen is QE is coming back big time. Central banks have spent much of the last few months bailing out um, banks What they're going to spend much of the next few years bailing out are governments, and the fiscal arithmetic simply doesn't work. Uh, Mandatory spending is slated to skyrocket in the next few years, notably in the U.S. But as I keep saying, the U.S. is the cleanest shirt in the laundry here. All the others, all the other countries, in much much worse situations. Uh, And if you look at the tax base, it's already been squeezed dry, and we've got the challenge of AI, which is going to be, if you like, eliminating more and more high wage workers out of the tax pool uh, and presumably making it easier to, uh, let's say, avoid uh, paying tax in various uh, jurisdictions. So the fiscal authorities have a huge challenge. And if you say that one third of US Treasury debt is currently owned by foreigners, of which China is a large part of of that pool, China is likely not to be such a big buyer in the future, which is going to put more and more pressure on domestic finance of, uh, uh, of the US fiscal deficit. Now, people might say, well, OK, what about the private sector? What about households? What about pension funds? But the problem is you might need higher interest rates to lure them out. And if you get higher interest rates, you're basically sitting on a knife edge because higher interest rates means that the the government uh, budget deficit will skyrocket and just cause a compounding of this whole debt problem. So you've got to keep rates low, which is why I'm saying yield curve control in some form must come back. But the arithmetic looks terrible, which is why QE is slated to come back big time. And if you don't believe me, believe the Congressional Budget Office, because you look at their latest projections, and it's in black and white.
0: And Michael, I want to get into the weeds on liquidity because going into this, I had a few ideas and some of them confirmed, and then you, you added a lot. But just to get your view really simple, let's put on a screen this chart of your global liquidity index from, from cross-border capital. And as you can see, it plummeted in 2022, and it has started to go back up. Is it, is it fair to say, Michael, that you think that liquidity will continue to increase, and would this have an impact of continuing to support risk assets?
1: Uh, The answer is yes and yes. Uh, It will go up. In fact, if you look at, I think it's the following slide in that pack, you'll see there's, uh, if you like, a predictor, a useful predictor, which is actually looking at the correlation between global liquidity, uh, the orange line, uh, which is an index, which uh, takes into account, obviously, all other countries, uh, and the black line, which is just the US dollar component and the US dollar monetary basis, we define it here is simply uh, the effective part of the fed balance sheet plus dollar holdings uh, in foreign exchange reserves of all foreign governments uh, and that basically is starting to accelerate quite nicely but if you look at the correlation it's not always as tight as this bear in mind but uh, certainly for the last 15 years it has been impressively close so i think it's worth bearing in mind that this is uh, this is underway uh, and then i think if you uh, if you look at the the following slide this is the other heads up which is the same global liquidity cycle. And what I've put on that uh, chart is uh, the supply of Treasury bills uh, in the US economy. And that black line has been shifted forward uh, a few months. I think it's uh, six months to show this a leading indicator. But the dotted line towards the end of that chart, that black line, is the projection using treasury the Treasury's own estimates of what they expect to issue in the bill market in the next six to nine months. So there's a positive
0: correlation between treasury bill issuance and global liquidity. That's somewhat paradoxical because uh, all things being equal, issuance of treasuries drains liquidity from the, the system, I believe. So we'll we'll get into that uh, uh, later. But Michael, so I, I wrote down uh, just a few things that have propelled liquidity higher despite the fact that the Federal Reserve's balance sheet has actually declined with the exception of March and April and the bank term funding program and the discount window. So if you were to put a chart of the S&P 500 and the Fed's balance sheet, uh, there has been a little bit of a divergence, but adjusting for that divergence are several factors, uh, many factors that, that you said. One is the fall in fixed income volatility. So the move index has gone down as we approach the later end of the rate cycle. Another, perhaps you sort of hinted at it, is the TGA drain with the, the debt ceiling drama as the US government was running out of money. That perhaps, uh, you know, ironically, was actually good for risk assets because all the money that would have gone to fund the US government went into stocks and then stuff like that. Uh, maybe another was money leaving the banking system and it going into money market funds and maybe a little bit of that trickled into to, to equities. Uh, another is the operating losses of the Federal Reserve, the fact that they are earning on their mortgage-backed securities and treasuries that they bought in 2020 and 2021, you know, one or 2%, and they're paying out 5% uh, on to the banks in um, you know excess reserves and also in the reverse repo facility. I guess the question I want to ask you is, why do you think this will continue because the us government uh, not issuing debt and basically running out of money that was a stimulative liquidity but how will this issuance of us treasuries you know up to a trillion dollars wouldn't that be actually be a liquidity drain and to the extent that it wouldn't be why not
1: well the the answer to the question is uh, it maybe is two, twofold i mean one is to say that uh if the uh, if those funds come out of the reverse repo pool, then it's not a drain of Fed liquidity. That That's clear. Um, and I'm saying if it's not certain, but the Treasury is going to great efforts, such as targeting sales towards the money market funds, uh, the sales of bills, that is, uh, which would basically suggest that that's what they're hoping will happen. Now, if you look at that uh, that chart, this is US banks reserves. Now, arithmetically, uh, because of the way the the, the uh, circular flow of money works, this is equivalent to federal uh, Federal Reserve liquidity injections into the system. Okay, so what you what we're showing here is the orange line comes through as bank reserves. That orange line was declining. Uh, you know, according to the script written by the QT adv- advocates, uh, it was declining very neatly up until the end of September. 2022 when it began to flatline. That inflection in September of uh, last year, I think, was triggered by the British guilt crisis. I mean, I'm willing to debate that, but that's that's my interpretation. And what you've seen is a flatlining right up until the bank crises in March, February, March of uh, this year. And with SVB, CSFB, First Republic, what you saw is a spike upwards in Fed liquidity injections through primary credit availability, uh, through lending, uh, other forms of lending to the banks, etc., cetera, uh, maybe some rundown of the Treasury General account. Uh, but basically, bank reserves have gone up. Now, the interesting point to draw out of this chart is that that dotted red line, uh, which was not an afterthought, but was actually put in there well before the event, is the level of reserves that a number of US academics, for example, Jonathan Wright, Uh, John Hopkins, uh, has basically suggested is the, let's say, minimum level of operating reserves for the US banking system, well above what uh, New York Fed estimates have been. Um, And it so happens that if you look at that uh, dotted red line, uh, it is tracing out the path that uh, one standard deviation below uh, the uh, level of reserves is also doing. So if you look at that, uh, what you can see is it seems to me is that level of reserves is being targeted. The federal authorities do not want bank reserves to fall uh, much below this threshold, plus, you know, minus r- rather one standard deviation. So they're giving and that, a- Is that uh, uh,
0: standard deviation, is that just saying if some certain event happens that causes a move, we don't want it to go below the dotted red line? So for, for viewers who are listening and are watching this, is the orange, the thick orange line that's not dotted, is that what the level of reserves actually are? And then I the dotted is a projection.
1: Reserves. The dotted line is one standard deviation below that, and it okay. seems as if that is coinciding exactly with what the academics say the minimal level should be. So maybe what you've got here is the Fed is targeting. Now we don't know that, but all I would say is if it's yellow and quacks, it's a duck.
0: All right, and so. How is the Federal Reserve targeting this level? There's the level of its balance sheets, quantitative tightening (QT). At it's it's going down. Uh, this line goes up when it lends with the discount window and the bank term funding program. As we saw that spike with SVB. What are the other facilities? In you know, other words, why was why isn't this line going down more? What about the guilt crisis in late September of last year caused? The the Fed to to do this, this pivot that that you see and is it did it extend swaps to uh, other banks or um, were those significant
1: or is this purely domestic? This is this is what we're talking about here is the domestic response. Uh, there haven't been meaningful amounts of uh, of uh, swaps to foreign central banks, but clearly one you know, that, that's a factor that could could occur in the future. Not, you know, we understand that. But basically, this is looking at what the, let's say, the Fed and the Treasury are doing together, because I would be very surprised if they're not cooperating on this. And if you look at what I described earlier on as the not QE QE and the not yield curve control yield curve control processes, I think they're moving in tandem. In other words, what's going on is that the Treasury is issuing a lot of bills. It wants to reduce the size of the reverse repo program. Uh, The Federal Reserve obviously acknowledges that, and there is deliberate targeting, uh, allegedly, uh, of particular tenors that would meet the requirements of the money funds. So I think there is a deliberate attempt to do this. So what you've got here is an engineered flatlining or targeting of bank reserves, and I would suggest that that is likely to move up, not down in the future. And that is a source of liquidity. Now, on top of that, on top of, of the... Federal Reserve liquidity, we've also got to look at the impact that more collateral in the system could have. So if more collateral comes in, and more collateral is by definition coming through more bond issuance, more bill issuance, that could be an additional source of funds. Uh, In other words, banks can lend against increased collateral. But one of the preconditions for that is the, the haircut on the collateral. In other words, how much you discount it by as a lender. So if you've got uh, you know, a thousand bucks in a in a bond, and you want to uh, borrow against that. The bank may say, "Well, I'm going to give you a 10% haircut, so I can only give you a maximum loan of 900." So the size of the haircut can be important, and the size of the haircut will depend on bond market volatility. So the move index, watching the move index for equity investors, is actually much much more important than looking at the VIX index, uh, which is the traditional measure of volatility. And that's why if you look at what's happened since the move index has come right down, uh, equities have responded quite nicely through that period. The move index uh, touched a peak, let's be clear, at 200, right? When I was in the fixed income markets, there used to be, you know, people would go ashen-faced if it got over above 150. That was the time when crises were coming. We hit 200. It's now back at circa 100. So it's come down a lot.
0: Yes. And uh, it's a great point about duration, how the longer duration the Treasury, the more liquidity, the the more it is for the the market to absorb, whereas a one-month Treasury is is basically akin to cash. So if the Treasury is issuing very short-term duration, that could reduce the liquidity drain. And also, you said they're targeting the money market funds. Money market funds want that short-duration paper, and also they could replace – uh the reverse repo, because a lot of money market funds invest in reverse repo facilities. So, you know, we can put up a chart uh of the Fed's reverse repo facility. Do you expect that to be drained as the Treasury issues all of this this paper? And will that not be a liquidity ad, but will that negate or offset the liquidity drain of treasury issuance if all of it comes from the RRP?
1: Yes, hopefully yes. We don't know for certain, but I mean that's what everyone is endeavoring to do, as far as I can see.
0: Sorry to interrupt, wanted to let you know about BlockWorks' upcoming crypto event, Permissionless 2. This ultimate DeFi gathering will be taking place in Austin on the 11th to the 13th of September 2023. It will feature the very best discussions on ZK Tech, roll-ups, account abstraction, MEV, and much, much more. All the big hitters in crypto are going to be there, so if you're into crypto, you need to be there too. To get a 20% discount to a full three-day pass to Permissionless 2, Click the link in the description and use code Guidance Twenty. That's Guidance Twenty. Thanks. Let's get back to the episode. There we go. So if we were to say over the next six months to take us into 2024, what will be the biggest adds to global liquidity? If all the features that we've talked about so far, uh, you know, the funding of the government, uh, uh, bank term funding program, discount window, shadow QE. How do you expect liquidity to to increase? What will be the biggest factors that are a catalyst for a further increase in liquidity over, let's say, the next six months, or or you can choose a longer time horizon?
1: Well, I think the I mean the answer is that we're we're in a, a liquidity cycle uh, upturn. That liquidity cycle upturn will not be a straight line, but the next peak is likely to be twenty twenty six. And the point that we've been making is that uh, you know after suffering a headwind, uh, investors suffering a headwind over the last eighteen months with liquidity being drained, and uh, what they're beginning to catch now as a tailwind, and that tailwind should last uh, two to three years, uh, if we're correct. Now, it may have more impetus because the there is this threat, as I uh, pointed out, that central bank QE has to come back big time to basically repair government or fiscal finances. And that's the other thing you've got to start thinking about. In other words, we're moving into a new era. The COVID crisis was a watershed in many ways. Uh, But it was a watershed in terms of the policy decision of how government spending was funded. It was not funded by higher taxes. Okay, that is unusual. It was funded entirely uh, by issuing debt. And the central banks took that debt up. Uh, What we've got is a similar problem coming up because you've got another big spending program which is being caused by effectively two things. One is aging demographics, which are forcing mandatory spending programs up. Uh, And you've also got the defense uh, bill to pay. And if you look at CBO projections, Congressional Budget Office projections, they've got a relatively passive uh, forecast or projection for defense spending. If you get back to Cold War levels, when America was spending at least 5% of GDP on defense, then you're starting to look at serious uh, levels of debt issuance in the next ten years—an average of two trillion a year, in fact—and the Federal Reserve will likely have to come in and take a large share of that debt issuance. In other words, the Fed balance sheet goes up. Now, if you look at uh, at uh, Treasury, sorry, a big one. If you look at uh, CBO projections of Treasury holdings, currently the Federal Reserve is holding about five trillion in treasuries. Uh, according to the CBO. Uh, By twenty twenty, sorry, twenty thirty three, that will exceed seven trillion. On our estimates, you're thinking of nearer ten trillion. So QE is coming back big time. It's coming back big time, but it will have to be real
0: quantitative easing, not this shadow, not QE. QE, right, right, because that's one thing. When you we put up the chart of Treasuries uh, causing liquidity to go up. A lot of that, I mean, particularly 2020, was because the Fed bought all the treasuries in March and April of 2020, as well as mortgage backed securities, uh, agency mortgage backed securities. But uh, how, will they, how will they do this? Because the last not QE was in September of 2019, and they had the uh, repo facility. In what way will they enact shadow? You know, what, what facility will it be? Or will it be a facility that doesn't exist yet that they'll sort of make up?
1: I don't think there has to be any, any sort of subterfuge necessarily. I think what they'll do is basically just buy treasuries. I mean, they're going to have to do that. Uh, maybe they're not going to stand on a soapbox and shout about it, um, but they'll do it. And the, the Federal Reserve has to come in and buy, and buy the debt. I mean, you know, I may be wrong, but then you've got an even worse situation in prospect if they don't do that, because who else is going to buy? Uh, you've, got a, you've got a big deficit. That's almost set in stone. And I keep saying, and well, this is not, uh, you know, knocking the US. The US is the cleanest shirt here in the laundry. Make no mistake, the other countries are in a desperately bad situation, um, and that's why I still think, as an aside, the dollar is still, you know, uh, dominant in the world economy. But if you look at how this is going to be funded in the US, uh, foreigners are not going to be buying. Uh, so much of the debt. They own a third already. And the question to ask is, are the Chinese really going to be such big buyers? Are the Saudis going to be as big buyers uh, as they've been in the past? That must be a serious question mark. Um, So you come back to the domestic sectors. Of the domestic sectors, you've got households and pension funds. Uh, Are they likely to be buying? Well, they may buy, but they'll demand a higher interest rate. Now, if you have a higher interest rate, then the interest bill of the Treasury compounds That creates even more of an overload on the fiscal deficit, and the debt burden skyrockets. So you get onto a knife edge situation there, where interest payments start to absorb more and more of the deficit, and it's an unwinnable situation. So you've got to find another route, which does not mean higher interest rates and does not lean on foreigners. So that has to be the Federal Reserve. It's the path of least resistance, only resistance, or only non-resistance. Uh, it's the only thing to do. So that's why I think it's coming back. I mean, please, I hope I'm wrong, but uh, I, I don't think so. I think this is this is the reality. We're moving to an era of structural monetary inflation, uh, and that's what the COVID crisis effectively—you uh, know—that was the starting gun. Uh, this is what's happening big time now, and you've got to change asset allocation accordingly. Now, the point that we make, and we—I come back to maybe one of your earlier questions which is why has the market gone up? Uh, the market has gone up let's, for the simple reason that the discount factor, uh, in other words, the PE has expanded. Now, if you look at how uh, capital markets work, and let's take a very simple or straightforward example of, uh, of uh, the equity markets, people think of the equity markets as having two moving parts, an E, which represents earnings, and a PE, which is the multiplier applied to earnings, which gives you your price. Now, the focus of economists is 100% on the E, right? And what they're telling you is that the E is going down big time. But that's not how markets work. Markets work on the PE. 80% of the movements in the S&P or any major index is about movements in the PE multiple. So what we focus on is what's driving the PE. And that's the key question. In my estimation, or my experience, what drives the PE is two things. One is rising liquidity, and the second is falling inflation. Now, have we got falling inflation? Well, we can dance on the head of a pin and say maybe yes, maybe no. But the reality is that inflation is going down. And we do a measure, which I think included in the charts, which is basically looking at what we think of as the inflation pass through. It's a measure of inflation persistence. Now, what that inflation persistence measure is, is a very simple, for those that are sort of statisticians and slightly wonkish, it's an autocorrelation coefficient. But it basically looks at the effect of shocks to inflation in the US system. And it basically says, how long do those inflation shocks last on average? Now, if you look back through the course of history, starting in the 1950s, you can see that inflation shocks generally don't last very long until they do. And the big episode was in the late 1970s, early 80s, when Volcker came in to fix the problem because the inflation pass through was right up at over 50 months. So what that's saying is that if you get a shock to inflation in June, that's going to persist in the pricing structure. It's going to echo, have a ripple effect for basically 50 months. So you're talking about, you know, uh, well over five, you know, almost five years, four and a half years of, of uh, problems. Now, if you look at where we got to in 2021, the peak was 31 months, almost three years. So inflation shocks were likely to affect or distort adversely inflation expectations for up to three years. And that was telling us inflation was becoming embedded. But where we are as of the the last print last month uh, was down to 11, just over 11 months. Now, the rate of decline on that estimate or that that pass-through statistic uh, has been more rapid than during the Volcker years. It took five years, really, to get inflation persistence down. And what you're getting now is it's happening quite quickly. And that is a very important heads up to how the market works, because basically the market is driven by uh, inflation. Now, if I give you another, I want to give you another uh, way of looking at that. And if you take a look at slide 21, you can see uh, maybe that uh, indicator at work. And on slide 21, what we look at is data from Robert Chiller's database, where we've basically taken, um, first of all, in orange on the left, the CAPE using a five-year estimate of average earnings. And the- Yeah, that's a cyclically adjusted Price-to-earnings ratio. Correct, yeah. Uh, It's the sort of standard long-term metric of value that's used for the US stock market. And that is shown correlated against the US long bond. Now, everybody says, and it's termed the Fed model, that what you've got to do to judge the stock market is to look at bond markets. Well, what that chart is telling you is that bonds don't really matter that much. In other words, there's not an active arbitrage between uh, stocks and bonds that are going on. It's in the textbooks, but it's not in not in the history books, right? Look at the right-hand chart, which is the same data on the CAPE. But what we put on there is the five-year average US consumer price inflation. Now, I would suggest that the correlation is much, much closer uh, on the right-hand chart than the left-hand chart. So what really matters is basically uh, the inflation rate. And if you look at the following page, there's uh, a a regression analysis, which, you know, I'm not going to win any statistical prizes for this because it's it's pretty basic. But what we fixed, what we fitted was a very simple uh, uh, regression, a cubic regression, which basically shows that dome shape. And what it indicates is the plot is showing uh, inflation on the lower axis against the five year cape on the. Uh, y-axis, all those dots represent uh, uh, you know, months over the period from 1890 to 2022. And that regression basically has a peak at around 2% inflation. So what that's saying is that in terms of valuing equity markets, there is a sweet spot around 2% inflation. If you go towards deflation, negative inflation, in other words, the market gets viciously derated because then you get insolvencies It's very difficult for corporations to deal with falling prices, as we know. If you go for higher inflation, the market also gets derated. That was the story of the 1970s. But providing you don't go too far to the right, the equity market holds up. And if you get falling inflation, in other words, if you're, say, let's going from uh, 4% back to 2% or from 6% back to 2%, you can see there, moving up that black line, you get a re-rating of the market upwards. And that is what's going on. So the key here is understanding that dynamic. Now, if you flip on um, two pages, uh, what you'll see is another metric that we like. And this is how we've defined uh, what's been happening in the market. Now, Everyone is focusing on, let's say the PMIs, and I'll describe this chart in a moment. In other words, the purchasing managers indexes, the US ISM index, You know, people say is a great predictor of the economy. Yeah, it is, OK. But also inflation matters. So what I've done in this chart is to take the New York Fed and the Philly Fed PMI uh, questionnaires, the monthly ones, and subtract from that data the prices paid subcomponent. So in other words, what you're looking at is the differential between, let's say, output expectations and inflation expectations. So basically, what this is saying is that if the economy goes up and there's no inflation, then that black line will rise. And the orange line is the S&P one year later. So in actual fact, we've advanced that black line, pushed it forward 12 months. So it's predicting what the market should do. And the orange line is the year-on-year change in the S&P. So think think this through. If you've got an economy that is weakening, but inflation is falling faster, that black line goes up, right? Yep. That's what we got. Inflation is falling faster than the economy is shrinking, which means the market, the stock market, the PE is being re-rated. And all the emphasis on the E we think is exaggerating uh, the negativity about the market. What you've got to look at is not the E, but the PE. And the PE is driven up by falling inflation and by more liquidity. And more liquidity is coming in a number of ways. It's coming because the Fed has switched off QT. It's coming because collateral is going to be used more efficiently as bond volatility drops and the collateral pool goes up. It's going to increase because other central banks are going to be adding liquidity. We haven't spoken about China yet, but China yeah, means yeah. badly to goose its economy. It's already had one go at it at the beginning of the year. It's cooled off, but it's, it's going to do it again. They're going to have to do that. There's no question. There's no way out. With The, unable- the spigots are coming. The liquidity yeah. spigots are coming in China. Yeah, it has to come uh, simply because you can't sustain an economy, uh, even a, a, you know, a Chinese type economy, with 20% Utah unemployment. It just doesn't it just doesn't work. They're gonna to have to you know promote more growth, and I'm sure that's coming. We got the you know the first inkling of it in the last few days, anyway. And then you've got as well uh, what's going on is a major capital shift towards Asian markets. Now that's another factor which comes back to the cross-border flow element. That cross-border, those cross-border flows into Asia will be monetized by the central banks, and that capital shift is evident. Vis the Japanese stock market that's going up. Uh, you know we've got liquidity indicators and there's some in the pack which show the liquidity movement into Japan. Um, and I can give you a maybe a uh, there, there's a chart reference if I can find it quickly. But basically what that's showing on page 17 is the Japanese liquidity cycle uh, and the Nikkei 225 index and basically that's showing why uh, you know the Japanese market's going up. And if you believe that liquidity is going to continue to go up in Japan, then the market must rise uh, pretty well. You know, Warren, Warren Buffett's made a brilliant call here by shifting some of his funds into Japan, uh, catching it around the bottom. Uh, you know, great, great call as always. But you know, other markets are going to start to do the same, and so yeah. what we've got to start thinking about is the effect of these capital shifts. And just to look at the capital shifts, I think there's a slide I put at the uh, end. Right? Uh, it's, there's actually one, uh, maybe a little bit towards the beginning. Uh, which is uh, I'm going to find it for you now, page nine, which which looks at uh, capital shifts uh, globally. It's regional capital flows, and what that's basically spelling out is the yellow line at the top is flows into the US into the US dollar, effectively. Uh, the black is flows into Europe, and the red is flows to Asia. Now uh, I fully acknowledge the fact that there are still positive flows. Uh, into the US. This is uh, monthly data as a percent of global liquidity uh, in terms of what the axis is showing. That orange line uh, at the top or yellow orange line is starting to lose momentum. And what you can see at the margin is that the red line is starting to move up. Uh, The black is also sinking. Uh, So what we would suggest is there is the margin, a capital shift towards Asia going on. And that's one of the things that you see in the data very clearly. Now, one of the anomalies, uh, one of the strange things to say about what's going on in markets right now is the movement of general movement of funds into um, into the um Emerging markets.
0: You know, I just want to return to that point about inflation. It's undeniable. So, some of it is inflation on a year over year basis is just base effects. You know, one year ago, the price of oil was at $120. But even on a month over month effect, because energy and oil and gas, electricity is so volatile, the headline inflation, which is you know, representative of what actually people pay, has really uh, plummeted. Although people point out that core inflation d- does remain sticky. So, if we were to get Another upsurge in the price of oil, the liquidity could fall fall again, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's no question about that. I mean, I'm not I, I'm not going to you know sit here and deny facts. If uh, if that <laughs> happens, then one's got to you know readjust the view. But I think the you know the point that I would make is that one of the one of the key drivers of liquidity, the pool of liquidity, is a slowing real economy. It's not just new sources of liquidity that you've got to take into account. It's also uh, the release of liquidity from a real economy that's been slowing, and that real economy, you know, as we know, has been slowing. Uh, it may well bottom out in the next couple of months. That would be our expectation. But it's still releasing liquidity. How does a real economy that's
0: slowing release liquidity? You think of liquidity going up as bank lending goes up. We had a huge surge in bank lending in 2022. Again, I just want to repeat that. We had a huge surge in bank lending, commercial bank lending in 2022, as capital market activity slowed down from from 2021, but liquidity actually fell as bank lending exploded in 2022. Now, bank lending is, uh, I don't want to say falling, but rate of growth is going down. And anecdotally, I, I think it probably will continue to, to go down and maybe even actually contract, yet liquidity, as you say, is, is going up. So how is it that you have kind of an inverse relationship between credit, bank credit growth and liquidity?
1: Well, the the answer is is that uh, you know you, that corporations will require less money for working capital. That if you've got oil prices that are you know what approximately half their peak last year, uh, oil is the oil oil industry is a huge user of liquidity um, uh, for stockpiles, transactions, whatever. Uh, that money is not going to be used. A lot of it can be tied up in shipping or you know transport, etc. Uh, those those working capital demands or use of Liquidity for working capital comes right down. So there's funds available. Uh, they may sit in 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 treasuries in corporations, but they're available for financial markets. Uh, and that's that's basically one of the mechanisms uh, through which global liquidity can rise. Uh, you know, the the old adage is that strong economies don't always have strong financial markets. In actual fact, it's often the uh, often the reverse, which is which is often a paradox to you know the average investor, because they tend to think that it's always about strong economies and strong financial markets. It's not. Uh, you normally the stock market normally leads the economy, um, and part of the reason for that is that there's a release of liquidity around the trough of the uh, of the economic cycle, or just prior to the trough of the economic cycle, and that's maybe what we're getting right now so all these factors are important to weigh up in terms of understanding you know how how liquidity is moving
0: and how does bond performance play into that because liquidity has been rising it's been going into stocks but not to bonds bonds are actually have suffered even as inflation itself has gone down does that mean that growth has been uh outperformed expectations and that we're not into a recession yet or do you think we are into recession yet like what are what do you make of the bond performance, liquidity, and how that indicates about a potential recession and where we are in the business cycle?
1: Well, I think that the uh, you know a lot of people make uh, you know claims, understandable claims that the amount of QE that's been going on in the last few years has heavily distorted financial markets. Uh, you know, it's a debating point, but I think where it's where that is very valid is looking at the fixed income markets. Um, and you know, one of the the biggest anomaly uh, that I've seen in my career. Uh, you know, still exists in the U.S. Treasury market, which is hugely negative term premium. Now, term premium are a wonkish concept. Uh, they are basically the uh, additional amount you would pay, uh, or is normally is normally paid by a bond investor above the expected roll of a one. Let's say a one. If you roll a one-year interest rate each year for ten years, you get, uh, if you like, an average interest rate or expected interest rate. But that's not the price or the yield that you would pay for the bond. You normally pay a bit more on top of that, uh, and that is because of a term premium. Now, the reality—you normally pay less in price, but higher in yield. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, in other words, you, you, the yield is 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 more. So, the price is discounted. Now, if you look at the moment, it's completely upside down. And what's happening is that you're not paying a premium. You're getting a, There's a big discount. So, in other words, the term premium is massively negative. So, we would argue it's about minus one and three quarter percent right now, which is pretty much at an all time low. Now, that is a staggering statistic. And why is that? The answer is probably because there is a shortage of collateral in the system. Now, what that tells you is that if the Treasury is going to start issuing a lot of debt, in coming years, that yield or that that term premium is going to start to uh, become less negative and maybe move back to zero. <coughs> excuse me, which is what you would expect. Now, if that's the case, that is going to put upward pressure on yields, even despite the fact that you may get the the Federal Reserve cutting interest rates. So, our point in the last couple of years has been: look. Bond markets are likely to be awash. They're they're best going to trade sideways. Many people have been saying this is the best time to buy bonds. It's not. It's a decent time to buy bonds. But the best time to buy bonds is later in the cycle when the yield curve normally drops. This is a stage when you tend to get a yield curve that doesn't move very much or, if anything, begins to steepen a bit. Uh, It's not the time when bond returns are normally at their best. Okay. Uh, now the reason for that is that what happens is that even if policy rates are cut uh, because of recession fears, what you find is that term premium rise. So what you gain on lower rates, you basically lose on higher term premium. And if you take a look at a chart on page, I think it's fifty in your pack, what you'll see five zero five zero five zero. What uh-huh. you'll see is a chart which looks at the term premium on the U.S. Treasury market in orange. And the black line is looking at expected terminal policy rates. Now, if you look at that, what you can see is that's the blades of a pair of scissors. And as the black line goes up, so the orange line has gone down. And as the orange line goes up, it may well be that the black line comes down. And so add those two numbers together and you get the yield, approximately the yield on the 10-year bond. And those two are not designed to be correlated in actual fact or negatively correlated. And in fact, over the long term, they have zero correlation. Uh, The term correlated on this chart, I'll I'll say that.
0: And so all things being equal, I know things are never equal, but all things being equal, a uh, more negative term premium for bonds uh, would lower longer term interest rates relative to short term interest rates. So would incline it to... uh, a less word upward sloping or an inversion of the yield curve, and that's exactly exactly what we have now, where the two ten spread is my wow minus ninety three basis points. So the two year yield is ninety three basis points higher than the ten year yield, and by the way, shorter term interest rates, the so three months six months, are higher than the the two years. So the curve is ultra inverted. Isn't that a financial setup that's hostile to liquidity creation? Because I mean, you talked about how it's a, whether it's a good opportunity to buy bonds. On an unlevered basis, without borrowing money, but on a levered basis, I mean, to borrow money at five percent overnight money at five percent, and to buy what uh, a ten-year Treasury yielding three point seven percent, you're losing money every single day. Isn't this in an inverted yield curve? I mean, that's what they that's what they they teach us in school uh, is is very hostile to liquidity, right?
1: Well, it, it can be, but actually, in actual fact, if you take a look at, um, uh, and I'm going to point you towards another chart. Uh, if you take a look at page 47, what you'll see is the relationship between liquidity and the slope of the yield curve. Now, this is the actual data, the actual yield curve. Uh, this is the ten-two. Uh OK, we accept that maybe that in the last few days, that black line has gone down again. But if you look at the history over that period, the orange line is showing US liquidity on our measures And the black line is the slope of the yield curve. And the the orange line has been shifted forward, as the uh, title says, by nine months. So it's a predictive indicator. So what we are suggesting is you're going to start to get a steepening yield curve. Now, that's exactly what you'd expect uh, You know, at this stage of the cycle. You should begin to see the yield curve steepening. Now, I haven't cheated on this chart by beginning in year 2000. Uh, The data goes back consistently back into the 1970s. With a very similar relationship, uh, and what it basically says is the f- flow of liquidity drives the you know drives the term premium, and it drives the slope of the curve. Now, the point about this this uh, narrative is basically what it's saying is that the yield curve is very distorted at the moment, uh, not only because liquidity has been at a very low level, uh, but it's also distorted by the fact that uh, treasury issuance. Uh, has uh, been absent for the last few months because of the debt ceiling, and that's one of the factors that may well be causing a, a near-term scarcity of treasuries, which has been basically pushing, um, you know, yields down, uh, or certainly uh, causing the curve to invert more aggressively. Uh, what I would point you to, Jack, is to look back or to think about, uh, you know, hold the thought that the term premium on the ten-year bond is about minus one and three quarter percent. So if that is an artificial, uh, that's a distortion, if it's normally zero, uh, then you should be adding to the 10-year bond uh, 175 basis points, which would give you a very different shaped yield curve. So a lot of the distortion is coming through the term premium, and I would venture that that is uh, because of supply and demand for treasuries right now.
0: And so do you think that the 210 spread will get less negative and and uninvert by a bear steepener, long-term, the ten-year rates going up, or by a bull steepener, two-year rates going down, which is kind of a synonym for the Federal Reserve actually cutting rates.
1: I think it'll be, in truth, it'll be a bit of both. I think that there, there's a, you know, I don't think the the curve is going to move that dramatically in the next twelve months, um, but I think it's probably a combination of both of those two things happening. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, our view of bonds is that we thought bonds would basically be. Uh, a comfortable investment this year uh we continue to believe that largely the you know the 10 year the 10 year yield is range bound um i i think the you know the outlook from our perspective is m- much more favor stocks uh than uh, than bonds right now bonds, bonds are okay i mean you're not you're uh, you know you you're getting a good coupon carry is decent
0: and carries you're getting paid but it's it's not decent relative to the short term borrowing rates
1: well, if you have to lever, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Really.
0: But on an unlevered basis, the, the, the carry, carry is decent. Yeah. So, so you, you, do you think the Fed has done its last uh, hike? And when do you think they might start to cut?
1: I tend to spend a lot less time thinking about interest rates because I always think that they are a misleading indicator for financial markets. But I think if you had to put me on the spot, I would say that it would be unlikely that the Federal Reserve would raise rates again, Okay. And Now, I may, be, well, I, mean, I may be spectacularly wrong on that, but all I would say is that if, they've, if they're serious about getting the reverse repo down in size, I think it will be difficult for them to start rate, to hike rates again. Uh, and the other thing, which is maybe a mischievous thought, but it's always worth promoting these things, is that you know, how serious an inflation fighter is the Federal Reserve uh, if they decide when core inflation is 4% to skip an interest rate hike? I mean that's another thought that we've got to start, you know, scratching our heads about here. And I take the point that maybe uh, you know what the Fed has done is 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 still in the pipeline. It's still it's still uh, monetary tightening is still unfolding. But I you know I think that uh, the reality here is that we're in an era, uh, a long term era, ten years or more, where you've got monetary inflation. I keep stressing the word monetary inflation because it's coming from the monetary authorities. It may well be that cost. Deflation continues, and cost deflation can be because China starts to dump goods, the yuan weakens dramatically. I think that has to happen at some stage. Uh, that you get, uh, you know, demographics rather like in Japan, causing price deflation. All these things can happen, right? But that's much more on the cost side, not on the monetary side. It may be that there are other factors that cause costs to go up, but the high street price. Is a combination of both of those two factors. It's cost inflation and monetary inflation together rolled up in a hybrid. And what I'm saying is it's monetary inflation that really bothers me in the medium term. That may be good for stocks, and it may be good for crypto, and it may be good for gold, but I don't think it's good for bonds.
0: Thanks. And just to uh, get clarity. Where do you think in the U.S. at least we are in the economic cycle? Are we about to enter a recession, early into a recession, late into a recession, and about to uh,
1: exit one, or no recession at all? If you let me show you one more chart, page forty-one. Take a look at that uh, that chart, and then we can we can debate what that is. The uh, let me just explain what we've got here. Uh, we do a lot of modeling, as you probably uh, uh, gather. <laughs> The orange line is an AI-based model of the world economy, okay? And what we put into that is effectively uh, three inputs. It's corporate credit spreads, it's cyclically sensitive commodity prices uh, like lumber or copper or oil, and it's also the exchange rates of trade-dependent economies. So all those factors go in, and what the model does is it basically tries to predict what the tempo of the, of the world real economy is uh, from that information. Now, if you look at the dotted line, that is the relative price of cyclicals, less defensive stocks in the market. This is the MSCI index for cyclicals, less defensives. This is what you might call the Stanley Miller indicator, because he was the guy who said, this is the best economist I employ which is looking at the relative performance of cyclicals against defensives. And that was his heads up, very useful heads up as it happens to what the tempo of the economy is saying. Now, if you look at what the AI model is telling us, right, this remember is for the world economy, not for the US. The AI model is suggesting that uh, the world economy saw its low point several months ago. Okay, This clearly doesn't preclude another a double dip. So let's be clear. But the dotted line is the relative performance in the stock market of cyclically sensitive stocks against defensives. Now, both of those are saying the same thing. There are times when they didn't, but uh, certainly for the last decade, they've been tracking pretty closely. And I think that's something to think about. So that gave you uh, a pretty good heads up as to what to do in the markets. Uh, Start buying cyclicals. And this is global. So last year, China you know, was a huge recession
0: and Europe uh, economy was very bad because the price of natural gas went up like 20 times. Correct. Uh, what about in the US, though? You, because the US economy has
1: so far been resilient, at least that's what people are saying. Yeah, well, I think you just got to look back at uh, uh, some very recent indicators. Look at the uh, New York Fed Empire State Survey came out last week. Uh, look at the Philly Fed came out uh, again last week. Uh, what if they show a significant bottoming in output expectations? In other words, it, the economy seems to be bottoming out. Take a look at the Michigan Consumer Survey came out a day later, exactly the same message. It looks like the trough may well be pretty close. Um, and, you know, that's what if you look at other leading indicators, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people will, will uh, uh, you know, uh, say I'm wrong here, but other leading indicators seem to be saying much the same thing. You know, look at orders less less inventories for the ISM. Uh, that that spread is telling you that there's uh, probably a bottom end in the economy. Got
0: it. So yeah, the, the slowdown already happened. Uh, you, you could be right. I mean, I, I hope I hope you are right.
1: And I think I think the thing to say is, as a final thought, is the stock market may be right because the stock market always tends to bottom about six to nine months before the economy does. So it may have got it absolutely spot on this time uh, by beginning to pick up at the back end of 2022 about 6 to 9 months before what we're saying could be a real trough in the economy
0: right although the broad based russell 2000 or russell, russell 3000 is has been lagging the s&p 500 which has been lagging the nasdaq it's it's really the leadership has really been concentrated in a handful of stocks that are centered around uh, ai or at least are thought to center around ai you know the one being nvidia which is you know up <laughs> this was like tripled tripled this year um
1: but I think I think the best two sectors of the market. But you correct me because I may be wrong. Are house builders and semiconductors?
0: Uh, you're definitely right about semiconductors. you're probably right about housing too. Yeah, yeah, you're right. How- and semiconductors is a cyclical industry, but is it actually is this move a secular thing? If if AI is legit and it's not a bubble, then the move in semiconductors is not necessarily a cyclical indicator. But you're absolutely right about housing, and that that's uh you know. Um, you're absolutely right about housing. Okay, so now let's move move on to other central bank uh, liquidity injections, cross-border flows, non-US. First, let's talk about China. Mm -hmm. I know uh, China, its economy reopened October, November of last year. The stock market, Chinese stock market bottomed late October. Uh, What was the People Bank of China doing then? And how has it how has it uh, evolved since then? What's what's your forward outlook? And first of all, you know, for for the Federal Reserve, we think of stimulus as rate cuts, low rates, and then quantitative easing, expansion of the balance sheet. Is it the same with the People's Bank of China? Because I know the Chinese uh, financial system is very different from the U.S. And you know, I and perhaps some of our audience here uh, would would like you to clarify a few things.
1: It, well, uh, the answer is it, it's similar. It's a lot more straightforward. The Chinese system is nothing like as complex. And the People's Bank has more rigid control over the system than the Federal Reserve has. Now, In other words, the Federal Reserve would wish it had as close a control as the People's Bank. Uh, the People's Bank, you know, obviously controls the state-owned banks. It controls the policy banks. Uh, it can allocate credit through window guidance. Uh, you know, think back to what happened in Japan in the 1970s and 80s uh, with the BOJ. I mean, this is a an Asian-type central bank. It is in, uh, you know, I'm not going to say total control, but it controls uh, a lot of the economy controls the tempo of the economy, and if you take a look at, uh, you know, there's a few pages of slides. Char Thirty-seven. Thirty-seven looks at the balance sheet of the People's Bank. I mean, the 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 key takeaway here is that if you look around the end of 2022, the red line represents a six-month annualized growth rate. So there was a surge in liquidity coming through that is beginning to tail off recently. Uh, you can see that in the on the level. Uh, which is shown by the black and orange uh, areas. The orange area is uh, Chinese holdings of uh, foreign exchange. The black is their domestic monetary operations. There was a watershed uh, moment, if you like, in uh, in China around 2015 when 2014 2015 when um, foreign exchange reserves were no longer the main engine of uh, of liquidity growth. it was basically domestic money market operations. By the People's Bank. Uh, the People's Bank is now, as I say, alongside the Federal Reserve, the most important central bank in the world. And we've got to do an awful lot more PBOC watching as well as Fed watching. We do PBOC watching. Uh, and what you can see here is it looks as if the balance sheet is sort of beginning to slow. Now, that is probably the correct interpretation for the moment. And the next slide is basically showing uh, a more detailed assessment of open market operations. The black line on the chart is our index of Chinese liquidity, um, generally, and the bars represent uh, daily uh, operations, open market operations by the PBOC. Um, and what that basically shows is uh, a recent peak, but the level of uh, of uh, activity has started to tail off. As you can see, those bars are dropping. now. Uh, Although the end bar says September 23, it's because what we tend to look at here is the average level over six months. And we're just assuming that current levels uh, as of mid-June remain constant to the end of the third quarter. And that allows us to get those bars in place. And the dotted line is the resulting projection of what our liquidity index would look like. Now, that's a projection. Uh, it still means that liquidity is pretty ample in China, but clearly the impetus is slowing down. Although, as I've been saying, we would expect that to step up again because the Chinese desperately need to goose their economy as the economy is slowing down. And this is the only route they have. I mean, China has basically got uh, you know uh, only two avenues which it can use to, uh, to get growth. One is export growth, which would really mean getting the yuan down but I do expect at some stage in the next few years that the uh, you know the big figure in front of the yuan is 10 against the dollar not seven and the other thing they do is uh, is try and do domestic infrastructure spending which requires the shadow banks in China the nefarious shadow banks to basically come into play and they're uh, beginning to increase their lending once again so obviously the People's Bank has given them a thumbs up to start lending. Now, that may create further problems down the road, but, you know, what China needs is growth near term. So I would expect the Chinese to do more. And if you look at the following slide, what that correlates is the people's banks liquidity injections shown in orange. Um, That's the data from the previous slide, Uh, again, with the extrapolation to the uh, to uh, through the back end of this year. And the gray line is the, an index of the world business cycle, world business climate. It's basically all major surveys in the world weighted by uh, economic size. So it's the USISM, the Tancan in Japan, the EFO survey in Germany, the CBI survey in the UK. You get the idea. And that shows the temper of the world economy as an index. And look at the correlation between what China's doing and the world economy. And that may give you some explanation as to why we think you may be getting a world economy picking up in the next few months.
0: Hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of Forward Guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto, some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto, And a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, Blockworks Research might be a good fit for you. Blockworks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com slash sign dash up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code GUIDANCE10. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. So Chinese stimulus is uh, injections from the People's Bank of China, the level of rates which is set by the People's Bank of China, uh, state-owned banks and, and bank lending, I should say much more controlled in China than it is in the US and other countries, and then I guess uh, fiscal spending, the stimulus that is in the pipeline right now, uh, how much of that, would you say, is the liquidity injections versus, I know they they cut the rate, but it's only by 10 basis points, so not a, a huge amount. Well, yeah,
1: I mean, it, r- rates are less important in China. It's much more the signaling uh, effect from rates. But it, what really matters are the uh, daily operations of the People's Bank. That will tell you whether China is easing or not. And as I said, they, they undertook a major easing the end of last year, uh, through into the first couple of months of 2023, and then basically March, April, and May have seen a serious lull in that liquidity uh, surge, and we're seeing some signs of pickup through June. So you saw a lull in the stock market too.
0: How large is this stimulus that we've had over the past six months in China, uh, or 10 months, and what you see going forward versus historical, because if we go to that uh, slide thirty-seven, you know, in twenty twelve, the balance sheet was almost doubling every six months, and now we're talking about a five percent increase. So it seems a little yeah slow I mean, and small.
1: It, it absolutely, I mean the you know what was happening uh, you know back 10-15 um, uh, years ago was a situation where the Chinese were simply monetizing. Uh, huge increases in foreign exchange reserves. And that was causing uh, their domestic credit aggregates to explode. And um, that's you know, that's why the Chinese economy, uh, you know, if you like, exploded in terms of growth and in terms of asset price appreciation. But that's now stopped pretty much since 2014, 2015. They've got a much tighter control uh, over the system because the People's Bank has, uh, has moved in. And that's shown by that sort of black area um, you know, that black cloud over the graph is really the, uh, the actions of the PBOC. But the best way to put it into perspective, I think, is to look at the following chart, the one that we had up, the slide 38, which is then looking at those open market operations. And you can see, you know, the clusters of money going in. And there was a lot of money that was injected around, the, the, around that sort of period, maybe early 2016, um, but the question is, you've got to see a sustained level of injection in markets. But that Chinese liquidity cycle, uh, the black line on that graph uh, is the is the driver, the impetus behind the world business cycle, uh, which is that chart that I showed you on the following page, 39. So that black line is reproduced on the following slide in orange. And that tends to govern the tempo of the world business cycle. It leads by about... Uh, six to nine months, and so what you can see here is uh, the likelihood the world economy may pick up. But you know you've got a cycle, so it may well be that there is a loss of impetus unless the Chinese keep uh, keep pumping liquidity back into the system.
0: And so this chart is actually on a, another deck, so but I can we can put it up later. You're tracking liquidities for each country, and the one of the very few countries where liquidity is actually positive above 50 is in China, where it's at 72. Uh, elsewhere, you know, in the US, liquidity is still low, but it's going up. So would you say the rate of change of liquidity is more positive or more important than the level of liquidity?
1: Well, those indexes are basically hybrids between levels and rates of change. So in actual fact, they take into account momentum as well. Uh, but where you're getting uh, if I point you towards um, uh, a chart which basically should illustrate what's going on, take a look at page at slide 51, because I think there's a very important story that is unfolding there. And this is one of the things that really persuaded us uh, back at the turn of the year when we uh, you know, had a previous meeting uh, on forward guidance, which was why we were positive. And what this is showing is uh, two indicators. One is our global liquidity index which is the orange line, which is a very broad uh, measure across 90 economies worldwide, uh, weighted by size, looking at all components of liquidity. And the black line, which is simply uh, cross-border flows, the cross-border component of that, uh, of that cycle, only to emerging markets. Now, if you look at that and you sort of squint and maybe you know ponder over the chart, what you can see is it's very, very unusual for uh, the black line cross-border flows to pick up uh, during periods of economic recession or economic tension. These flows tend to be very skittish because foreign investors, particularly into emerging markets, uh, you know, run at the first sight of trouble. And so what you've basically seen is a huge amount of money being thrown at emerging markets uh, over the course of the last uh, six, nine months. Emerging market currencies have held up remarkably well uh, through this period. I mean, with a few... You know, celebrated uh, cases where, where that's not been true, but generally they have, uh, which is very unusual for a period of economic downturn and a period of, of some dollar strength. So a, a period of the
0: Fed raising rates. Normally, the narrative goes: the Federal Reserve raise rates, that sucks money from around the globe, so money flows out of emerging markets into the U.S. to to hunt for that safe, uh, higher yield, and also foreign countries, foreign. Uh, countries, companies, not the countries, uh, are the net debtors in dollars. So you can have a dollar squeeze effect. But as you say, and as the chart indicated, we have not had that, uh, right. even as we had a pretty significant dollar spike uh, from the beginning of last year to like September.
1: Correct. So there is something unusual going on here. And I think, you know, as I said, is that maybe what all this data is telling us is that the world economy is not in such a bad shape as economists are saying. Uh, and maybe... There is, uh, uh, there is life, if you like, in the Asian economies. Uh, and maybe this is what the Japanese market is already telling us, that things are beginning to restart in Asia. Um, and that capital flow diagram is reinforcing the earlier picture of this capital flow to Asia. Now, Asian central banks are monetizing this cash. So that's a further fillip to global liquidity growth. And all no. in all.
0: And how is uh, J- the Japanese Central Bank, uh, Bank of Japan, increasing liquidity? Because I know the Bank of Japan does so much quantitative easing. There are some issues of uh, Japanese government bonds, JGBs, that the Bank of Japan owns more than a hundred percent of them because they're uh, synthetically long when they're uh, to people, who, you know, market participants who want to shorten. So, how could you even judge liquidity of a market where the, a central bank is already
1: so active? Well, I mean the the answer is that you know the, what what you say is is, is absolutely correct, but The fact is that the balance sheet per se is not necessarily, as in the case of the US, the best guide guide to liquidity. Excuse me. What you've also got to take into account is what is being sterilized on the other side. And you've got to look at the liquidity creating parts of the balance sheet. Now, if you do that, the Japanese have not been as easy, or certainly put it another way, were not so easy as people would have argued last year in 2022. But they're beginning to add liquidity through this year. And that, that's the difference.
0: Got it. And what about uh, ECB, European Central Bank and the Bank of England?
1: Well you know I, I hesitate to say they're sort of bit part players in all this, but, uh, but you know they're, they're not really the ones that matter that much. The ECB has got this, uh, has got a target of actually reducing radically uh, the size of the ECB balance sheet as we know. This is starting to occur, but it's not really bitten yet. But I'd say good luck with that because I don't think they're getting anywhere near uh, their projections uh, for the simple reason that it it risks uh, banking instability in the eurozone. And I think at the end of the day, uh, what you'll start to see is the ECB beginning to follow what the Federal Reserve is doing. I think they're uh, a step or so behind the Fed here. Uh, But, you know, I may be proved wrong, but I just think the numbers that they've chalked up for indicating a reduction in their balance sheet are fanciful. I mean they won't get anywhere near that.
0: And what is the end game that you see here? Will central banks end up having to cut rates or will they do quantitative easing while rates are still high? In, in other words, the fiscal arithmetic that you've you've cited, how does that
1: play out? Rates have to stay elevated, okay in an ideal world because the great problem we've got is debt. And as I've said maybe many, many times before on these on these programs, What we're living through is a a world dominated by debt where financial markets are not new financing vehicles, they're refinancing vehicles, okay? We've got to think about that. Something like seven in every $8 transacted in world financial markets are all about refinancing debt. That is an eye-wateringly large amount of money, okay? And if you don't get the role on the debt, you get financial problems, you get turmoil, you get financial crises, Okay. That's what it's all about. It's all about funding. And that's the key thing. Of the $1 that remains, an increasing part of that is being taken up by governments uh, with new issuance. So that's the problem we've got. We've got to get the level of debt down. And the only way is to disincentivize people with a high level of interest rates. Okay. And what you can't do is to get interest rates, they've got to be just right. So it's like a Goldilocks scenario. Okay. They can't be too high because if rates are too high, governments then start to suffer. Uh, in the sense that their interest bill will compound and debt will skyrocket. So they can't be too high, which is why yield curve control has got to be there in some form. And they can't be too low for the simple reason that you'll incentivize people to take on more debt. So they've got to be pretty much, I would think, where they are now. And I don't see that much room for movement, which is why I'm not ultra bullish on bonds. Okay, The end game, uh, if there is an end game, and it may just be simply a question of kicking the can down the road, which is probably the most realistic uh, you know outcome here is that liquidity has to go up because liquidity is the name of the game here markets are dominated by liquidity central banks create liquidity central banks are being asked to create more liquidity the financial system needs liquidity for uh, financial stability reasons the government sector needs liquidity for fiscal stability reasons okay and that's what's driving things you look at the last two charts I've got in the pack, which are page 55 and page 56, pretty much tells you the story here. Okay, This chart is showing the estimated levels of U.S. Treasury holdings by the Federal Reserve in orange as predicted by the Congressional Budget Office in the U.S. in their latest projections, and you can see there that the current level of debt Treasury holdings is about $5 trillion, And on estimates by the uh, CBO, they go to about $7.5 trillion by 2033. The figures that I've got, which are in grey, assume that you've got uh, a 5% level of defence spending in the US uh, each year. And that will take the level of debt uh, required debt holdings by the Fed up to almost 10 trillion by 2033. The numbers in, uh, above each bar, uh, the percentages, are the implied growth rate in the Federal Reserve balance sheet, the effective balance sheet, each year. Now you can see there's a dogleg in the chart. The dogleg I don't think is going to happen. The dogleg is basically what the CBO project using Federal Reserve assessments of their Treasury holdings, but I think those Treasury holdings are flatlining anyway. So I'm not convinced there's the dog leg down, but I think there is the, if you like, ski slope up. Uh, and that's the problem. Now, what does that translate into? What does it mean? It means that there's more QE coming. More QE means more liquidity. More liquidity means better asset prices. And if you look at the last chart, there is the long-term liquidity cycle that we draw. Uh, this is our index of liquidity, which we track here all the way back to the early 1970s. And it shows the schematic cycle, which we've just put a 65-month sine wave uh, over the top, and uh, for for the for the cynics who are listening, it might say, "Well, you've just put that on." Uh, you know, you fitted it uh, recently. Actually, we've had that same sine wave on uh, since I think it was year 2000, um, and it seems to be it seems to capture uh, most of the recent gyrations. I actually got the COVID low almost spot on, but that you know, um, let, let's come quietly and accept that's a coincidence. But if you look at where it's projected to go uh, by 2026, you're going new peak in liquidity. And that's what we think is going on. Now, market's never moving a straight line. Liquidity isn't moving a straight line. But, you know, we're going to have a tailwind behind us, I think, not a headwind in front of us. And that's the important conclusion. Got it. So we've we've got this sort of
0: quadrant chart up here showing, uh, what phase the market is in when liquidity is low but rising, when it's high but falling. So, would we right now, is it fair to say, be where liquidity is low but it is positive, it is rising? So, would that be in the rebound phase where the stuff that does well are uh, distressed securities, high yield bonds, fixed income, arb, and stuff like that?
1: Yes, I mean the the you need to go back, I think, to page forty three to get the uh, to get the uh, the 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 beginning of that. And what that's saying is that the orange line is uh, how we look at asset allocation. Um, That's basically showing the liquidity cycle. Uh, We think of four regimes, which we think of as calm, speculation, turbulence, and rebound. So we think of uh, what what the climate is like. If you like, think of that as the seasons, spring, summer, autumn, winter. Uh, The red dots are basically showing where the yield curve tends to inflect. So that comes about six to nine months after the inflections in the liquidity cycle. Uh, The economy tends to be the brown blobs. So that's when you see the low in the economy. Typically, Uh, the liquidity cycle tends to lead by 15 months or thereabouts. Uh, Always difficult to say precisely, but that sort of uh, magnitude. Um, And what you tend to find, uh, in fact, what what you found recently is if you look at, uh, as I foreshadowed that, New Fed Empire State Survey uh, and the Philly Fed surveys, both of those are bottoming now, and they're bottoming pretty much, uh, you know, 15 months after, um, you know, after the liquidity cycle. So you've you've got a you've got you know a pretty good um, uh, prediction of what uh, the economy should do. Going onto that matrix, what the matrix then says is that it associates each of those zones with what should be. Uh, ideal investments. Now, this is a great case of being approximately right and precisely wrong. Um, uh, but you know, broadly in the rebound phase, which is where we are now, you want those what we call credit arbitrage strategies. They're the things that should do well. Now, you know, this is not drilling down in the, into the detail, it's saying approximately start to investigate those areas. And you know, what it's saying is that you know you, you should be making money out of some combinational cocktail of those particular factors doesn't mean to say that you shouldn't be buying the stuff on the right in directional which is equities uh, cyclicals emerging markets but you don't want to have too much there because we're moving in that direction but we're not there yet but you want to be moving away from the volatility based strategies that were uh, you know the big winners last year which you know if you look at the uh, what that what is in that matrix? Yeah, you know, most of those factors actually performed pretty well last year, and that was the phase that the liquidity cycle identified us as being in. So it seemed to work quite, yeah, you know, pretty well last year, and it seems to me maybe working not too bad this year as well. So you know, although it's approximately right and maybe precisely wrong, it gives you a pretty good handle on where we are in the cycle.
0: Right. Michael, one of my final questions is you must be familiar with warnings about private market liquidity in buildings, loans and commercial real estate. So, you know, I I talked to uh, an investor who sells buys and sells loans, so doesn't not even bonds, but loans in between banks. And he's kind of a a broker. And he says that there's uh, liquidity has really fallen off a cliff. My words, not his, but it's very hard to get a, a bid there. Does your liquidity index, does it uh, not adjust for those things that are super hard to measure, like loans, where there's you know, not really a lot of data that's publicly available?
1: Well, I mean, what, what we're doing is we're, we're measuring the liquidity in the system. In other words, we're measuring what we call funding liquidity. Uh, we're not measuring market liquidity. In other words, the, the liquidity in specific markets. Okay, They are a derivative of what, of, of, uh, what happens prior in terms of funding liquidity. Funding liquidity will drive market liquidity. Now, if you go back to the very first slide you showed, which was our liquidity, our annotated liquidity cycle, what you can see uh, in sort of big letters uh, uh, at the top and the bottom of that liquidity cycle is when you get a peak in liquidity, it says asset booms. And when you get a trough in liquidity, it says banking crisis, right? Now, uh, what we just had, funnily enough, is a series of banking crises, right? Um, U.S. regional banks, Credit Suisse first, Boston, CSFB, etc. Okay. Unquestionably, liquidity is tight now. I'm not saying it isn't. I'm not saying black is white here. I'm saying liquidity is uh, is tight, but it's inflecting upwards, and things are getting better. There's a tailwind behind us, not a headwind in front of us uh, so much. So it's at the margin. That financial markets tend to price. And you know, everyone is looking. I mean, you know, among our clients, everyone's saying, look, what we're doing is we're waiting for the pullback, then we can buy again. We're waiting for the pullback, we're gonna buy. We're still waiting for the pullback, and then we're gonna buy. I mean, markets always climb a wall of worry. Okay. That that's that's the reality. And you know, people are keep, you know, keep saying we've missed yeah, maybe we missed it, maybe we missed it. But the market keeps moving up. And all I would say is to come back to a point maybe I made earlier on, you know, a 20% rise in the big indexes is telling you something has changed. It's telling you that maybe the bear market has ended. And if you look at the leadership of the market, not even, I'm not talking about the breadth here, look at the leadership. If my statement about semiconductors and housing is correct, then these are normally leading sectors. So there's a lot of dots that join up here. And I think liquidity was the, you know, the trigger in starting this, uh, this revival. And all I'm saying is that you know this is a liquidity pickup that's been triggered initially by financial stability concerns. Uh, the bell, if you like, the rang at the bottom was the British guilt crisis. Uh, and it was the extrapolation of that, the fear of that, uh, the extrapolation of that fear worldwide, which caused central banks to change and start looking more at financial stability concerns. And that's what's put the bottom in. And the market has basically begun to price a more positive outlook ever since. Now, I think that if you look forward, there is a lot more liquidity coming because it's not just uh, banks that need to be bailed out. It's also governments. And I think the central banks have got a big task on their hands in the future. I just simply can't see any way out of that.
0: And what do you think about banks, uh, how banks will perform? Uh, The rise in rates shocked many of them. Uh, whether it's we're talking the big banks we can group them into the big banks and then the, the regional banks uh, they are curiously absent from the cyclical stocks leading the way semiconductor stocks are on fire as are housing stocks banking stocks not so much and 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 we know why do you have, do you have any outlook on on the banks is, is liquidity good or, or bad for them that li- liquidity is low and rising and that environment uh, how does that how do banks fare in that environment
1: well you know as long as i've been in the business i've uh, I've noted the correlation between banks and the slope of the yield curve, and if you get a, a yield curve that begins to move more positively, then banks should do pretty well. Um, if you look at the at the regional bank index in the US, um, that tends to move, if I'm correct, from my memory serves me correctly, um, about a year after the movement in the liquidity cycle. So that would suggest that if liquidity continues to move higher over the next few months. Maybe 2024 is a decent time to be buying the regional banks in the U.S. There we go. So, so, Michael, it sounds like a lot
0: of, at least in the U.S., liquidity that has gone up so far has been for, uh, your cop-out phrase, but technical factors. But it sounds like as you expect liquidity to increase, eventually the Fed is, it can't continue to do what, what you would call uh, shadow quantitative easing or increasing liquidity without pulling that QE switch. Eventually, it will have to do quantitative easing. Uh, outright true quantitative easing, true QE. If the Fed doesn't do that, wh- what how what do you think the world will look like if uh, the Federal Reserve does not return to quantitative easing? I understand that it is your base case that they do return to quantitative easing at a, at a certain date, but if they don't, what does the liquidity picture look like there?
1: Well, if it doesn't happen, I mean, it's uh, it's like saying you know uh, if if you if you if you flip the light switch, does it go dark? I mean that that for sure. If you pull the plug out of your computer terminal, does it switch off? Yes, it will. And the fact is that if the Federal Reserve doesn't produce liquidity in the amounts that the market needs, then you'll see a financial crisis. And I come back to the fact that what has changed and what is not in the textbooks, and what is not in the narrative of economists, is the fact that the financial system is a refinancing system for debt, not a new financing uh, system for capital expenditure. And that is the fundamental difference that we've all got to start to understand. And in that situation, if you don't get the liquidity, in other words, the balance sheet capacity to complete the roll on the debt, you can't refinance, you fail, or the the corporation fails, you become homeless because you can't roll your mortgage, and disaster happens. These These are the sources of financial crises. And if the Federal Reserve and other central banks want to avoid financial crises, they have to supply liquidity.
0: Right, and uh, needless to say, I'm assuming that because you think liquidity will increase, IPOs will go back up, SPACs will go back up. I, in terms of the activity and uh, debt issuance, you know there will be a res- resumption of of bond deals, which were kind of on the, the back burner in, in 2022. Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for, for sharing your insights and you know coming on for so long, being generous with your time. Uh, people can find your work on Twitter at Cross Border Cap. Please remind us what what is the website where they can uh, access your work.
1: Uh, crossbordercapital.com, and we've also got a Substack uh, offering as well. Um, so if people want to read research, uh, it's available on Substack.
0: Now people need to check that out. Michael, thanks again for, for coming on, and thanks everyone for watching.
1: Thanks so much, Jake.
0: Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at Blockworks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and Blockworks Research using
1: code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.